You're listening to Work Tape, episode 85. It's your boy, Money Mitchell. We got Isaac Groovin Grover. This time, we're going to be diving into a little segment we're going to do in honor of Black History Month. We're going to be taking a look at some of the prolific and prominent African-American producers. And today's episode is going to be focused mostly on Nile Rodgers and Quincy Jones. And Nile Rodgers actually just won a Grammy recently with Beyonce for the Renaissance record. So he's still out there killing it. Before we get into that, though, let's just do a little bit of a quick recap of the Grammys, which happened a few weeks ago, and just kind of going through some of the big, big awards. Kendrick taking all of the hip hop awards as usual. I was glad to see Kendrick take the hip hop awards, although I still was a bit disappointed that once again, he seemed to get robbed in album of the year. But we'll talk about that in just a quick second here. But it is good that at least the Grammys in the hip hop area did not give it to Jack Harlow or DJ Khaled. Uh, They weren't too kind to Harlow. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, thankfully, it wasn't a situation where the Jack Harlow record or the Khaled record won, because I would have probably been more up in arms about it if that would have been the case. That was like another one. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, that would have given me flashbacks of when Macklemore won over Kendrick in 2013, you know, Good Kid, Mad City lost to the heist um, that year, which was just complete and utter robbery in every sense of the word. So I'm glad that the Grammys haven't made that mistake since and have, you know, just given it to Kendrick, which is probably maybe a little bit of a safe bet. But Kendrick's very deserving of it. Mr. Morale, The Big Steppers, one of the best albums of 2022. A bit of a jarring listen just because of how deep it goes. But I think the album's kind of grown on me. And I think over time, people are really going to appreciate how great of an album it is. Just like with every release that Kendrick seems to do. Yeah, his releases have a classic feel to them. Well, I think it's just you know very much like The Beatles or something. He tends to reinvent himself with every record, and he's not going to put out a record unless he is bringing something new to the table. I think he's even said that in interviews as to why it takes so long for him to put up follow-up records is because he wants to bring something new to the table. Um, If anything that I was kind of more disappointed in in regards to hip-hop at the Grammys, it's actually what didn't get nominated, not what did. No Denzel Curry and no Jid. Both of those records were really, really great, especially the Denzel record. Melt My Eyes, See Your Future was definitely one of the best hip-hop albums of last year, kind of with that jazz, psychedelic 90s feel to it. Yeah, I second that. Yeah, it's just a great record. Just got lots of great artistry on it, great bars, and just really smooth production. So I I would have loved to have seen that uh, be nominated. But like I said, I can't complain too much. Uh, we did have Kendrick and Pusha T in that category. Both of those artists are excellent. Of course, Beyonce won a ton of Grammys, as we mentioned before, making her the most decorated artist in history in regards to the Grammys. She actually broke, I believe, Stevie Wonder's record for the most amount of Grammys. 
So very well deserved too. That Renaissance record is pretty great as well, although it is kind of a bit of a hodgepodge sampling of just a bunch of existing dance music, but it is a very, very well done kind of homage and tribute to a lot of those styles. And, you know, Nile had a big play in a lot of that music. So it only makes sense. A huge play in one of the greatest, I mean, I think they're the greatest disco group of all time. And I don't even like just calling them a disco group because that oversimplifies who they were. Mm-hmm. It mitigates their mission. And I think they're one of the most influential, easily one of the greatest bands of all time. I'm just saying. Yeah. And for some reason, they don't seem to make a lot of, well, they make some top artists lists, but not enough. Yeah, I would say in terms of when you're ranking like 70s bands and specifically kind of 70s disco, soul, R&B bands, they don't get the same level of flowers. Like Earth, Wind and Fire. Yeah. Or um, the Isley Brothers or like the Gap Band even, I think, gets a little bit more, you know, flowers and respect than sometimes chic does i think it's just because with chic they've been sampled so much and like so frequently that people don't feel like as much of an urge necessarily to come out and say that you know because in a way by the fact that they're like one of the most sampled groups of all time that kind of establishes the greatness of the group and the fact that they continue to get sampled they're kind of like Chicago because Chicago also get robbed versus like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, but no one talks about Chicago's influence in the music. And so I feel Chicago and chic, right? Chic, <laughs> but seriously, yeah. like they had a crazy run of hit singles, both bands. So they, they are both hit machines. Yeah. But for some reason people don't, in fact, their hits are so overemphasized. No one even talks about their musicianship, which Dude, they're technically two of some of the most talented bands of all time. Like, they're really, really solid players, all of them. Oh, yeah. I think the thing with Chicago, though, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, is the fact that with Chicago, there's like two specific eras of Chicago. There's the Terry Kath era. There's kind of the David Foster era. And I think that's kind of a big reason maybe why. Chicago sometimes doesn't always come up in the conversation because the David Foster era, that was like so much more commercially viable and people kind of, you know, really knew Chicago kind of as the power ballad group from the eighties, which is kind of a real shame because of just, you know, how much they were able to, I think Chicago is one of the few bands that, I think seamlessly incorporated horns into their sound. 100%. Along with Earth, Wind, and Fire and Tower of Power, of course. I mean, Tower of Power is probably some of the greatest horns in music. Yeah, I like them a lot too. I mean, I, I would say even Bob Marley and the Whalers with the horns too, especially like on the Exodus. Another horn band, Chicago, Whalers, and Chic for some reason. I mean, they do the horns better than. Again, Earth, Wind, and Fire aren't a favorite of mine, but they're really good. But aside from them, those are, you know, in my top 30, all three of them. Oh, yeah. And they have some of the best horn sections in all of popular music. Yeah. You know, Nile Rodgers, even just from the beginning. Of course, with Chic, it was kind of more of a collaboration of Nile and Bernard, right? Yes, it was. Yes. And Tony Thompson was their drummer of choice. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, so not only did you have just the signature guitar tones of Niall, you also had Bernard and you had Tony in the mix too, laying down some great rhythm section. So you really had those three. Whenever it was like a Niall or Bernard production, it was Niall, Bernard, and Tony. Right. Those were the backbeats of so many hit songs from the 70s, 80s disco era. Right. And whenever people allude to the disco era, they're almost always talking about the chic sound, the Bernard, Tony, and Nile sound. Right, exactly. Because I feel like with a lot of disco records, disco is really interesting because it didn't really get, I think, into full swing until kind of like the mid-70s. It did start earlier than that, but it didn't really get at its peak until the mid-70s. So basically from like 74, 75. Even Wings jumped on that. <laughs> 1976 with Wings as the Speed of Sound. Yeah. And then, you know, so mid-70s up to basically like 1980, 1981. And then Michael Jackson put Off the Wall. So like 79, right? Yeah. Yeah, Off the Wall was 79. And that was kind of noted as pretty much like the last great disco record. Like pretty much the last big production great disco record was Off the Wall. Mm-hmm. in terms of a mainstream appeal, because when Mike put that out in 79, this was after the Disco Sucks movement like happened and you know the incidents at Wrigley Field. And there was another incident that happened at a park where they burned a bunch of disco records. And you know the real unfortunate thing is, I think it was kind of fueled by like discrimination because of the fact that so many disco artists, you know, were people of color. And then also they were appealing to more of like the LGBTQ community. So I feel like, you know, the response wasn't just, oh, we don't like the sound of disco. Like they killed it. Essentially, people tried to basically murder disco as a genre, but it prevailed, you know, and it kind of took a break for a little while. And then, you know, disco kind of got reinvented as house music, um, you know, in the 90s. Yeah. I think it's cool that it got reinvented, but I think it's good that it didn't go on forever, to be honest. Yeah, because I think if you would have had the full steam ahead, you know, let's say it didn't get cut off in 79 or 80. And let's say that that did continue, you know, into the mid 80s. I think it wouldn't have the appeal that it does. I think it would have lost a bit of its character and its kind of special, you know, charm, as you will. And so when it got reinvented and repurposed as house music, it kind of got, you know, revitalized It introduced a whole new generation to those types of sounds. And then actually, as of recent, with, you know, the Renaissance record, with the Dua Lipa records, even some weekend stuff kind of borrows a little bit from from disco as well. Dua Lipa, for sure, heavily from, you know, that sound. Yeah, and then the Renaissance record, too, with, a couple tracks and then actually the weekend's don fm borrows a little bit from disco as well like um take my breath is kind of the disco cut so i mean in a way you kind of have what is categorized as new disco now and then of course with the house music side you have artists like Kay Trinata who are killing it in regards to the house music side of things but yeah niall has just an incredible influence and just the longevity of his career from kind of the chic beginnings to his producing, you know, Madonna, for example, in the 80s. 
And Bowie. Oh, David Bowie, too. Exactly. You know, with huge, huge records. I mean, you know, Like a Virgin and um, was it Let's Dance or? Let's Dance. Yeah, which both are defining sounds of the 80s. I think more with Bowie even than with, I mean, the Madonna record was huge, too, because it definitely cemented her as like the queen of pop, essentially. But I felt like the Bowie one was even more significant in a way because it reinvented Bowie too at that time. Bowie was that guy who was doing so many different styles and then he worked with Niall and he just kind of kept pushing boundaries. Right. And, you know, with them too, I think I remember watching an interview or something where it was basically Bowie's intention to make a hit album, not hit songs, but a hit album where every song was basically fire, you know, because he listened to the Chic records, and basically that's how the Chic records were, was that every single track was a banger. Yes, and I think that's why it was hard for them to kind of get big, too, because sometimes bands get really consistent putting so many good songs in an album, and I don't know why, but Chic did that. They Album after album, each song sounded good, and I think that can be tiresome to the ears. Yeah, and I do think that if there's like kind of some peaks and valleys, ebbs and flows in regards to discography where i mean if you're just not missing at all you know sometimes i feel like the hits don't hit nearly as hard you know when you have an artist where when they hit they hit and then if there is you know some kind of things that are more low-key or that are not you know nearly as commercially viable i think those hit songs become like even more special and so i don't know i think that could be it and i think also just the momentum of disco kind of being burned out in the early 80s kind of, you know, just led to them not really being fully appreciated until really more later when you just realized, you know, how much of, you know, hip hop was based around chic samples, you know, I mean, Sugar Hill Gang, even with like the first, you know, real mainstream hip hop song, you know, with Rapper's Delight, that's good times, you know. It's just the 12-inch, like, instrumental kind of dance version of Good Times. But I think the really cool thing with Niall is that the longevity and being able to reinvent himself with, you know, modern artists or artists of the day, I think that's kind of what's kept him really relevant. Because as I mentioned before, with house music picking up where disco left off, of course, we got to talk about Niall's collaboration with Daft Punk on Ram you know, with Get Lucky and Lose Yourself to Dance. And I mean, he's just all over that playing and producing. And you definitely hear the influence because so much of that record, I think, is also a love letter from Daft Punk to Sheik, because probably without Sheik, you wouldn't have really gotten maybe Daft Punk. No, you wouldn't have because uh, Get Lucky. I mean, as soon as I heard that, in fact, when I first heard Get Lucky, I was like, why does this sound like a Sheik production? Because that, and then that, you realize that Niall's on it. Like, yeah, because oh, I was like, I was like, why have the? I'm like, but what the heck? Like, why does someone have that on there? And it's like, oh, it's because it's the same guy. It's because it's Rogers. And I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, and I think it's just really interesting because he just has a ton of widespread influence. I mean, his career has been going for what 50, 60 years now at this point. I would say so. Yeah. And with the Renaissance record, I mean, he just won that Grammy. So, I mean, he's still killing it. 
there's not really too many producers who can say that they've been literally turning out hits for like half a century. Not many. You could say a few, but Niall is one of those few. Right. Him and Quincy both are kind of in that category. I mean, I would say Niall is still more of, I mean, Niall's a great producer, but I think that Quincy is kind of more of a producer than even Niall is. Quincy's more of a producer than pretty much almost all producers, in my opinion. You know, Quincy Jones is kind of like your producer's favorite producer, in a way. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, I mean, in the yep. same way, you know, we talked about Dilla last week. That's kind of the same thing with Dilla, too. Like, especially in the hip-hop space, is that he is, like, your producer's favorite producer. Like, you know, it's kind of one of those things. And, you know, Quincy put out some great disco music with MJ. I mean, that Off the Wall record is phenomenal. And I think also when people look at MJ's discography, I mean, people realize, I think, how good some of the songs on Off the Wall are, but I don't think they realize how good of an overall album it is, especially in comparison to Thriller and Bad, which were kind of more commercially successful. Of course, Thriller being the highest selling album of all time. But I mean, Off the Wall is a fantastic record like even the deep cuts on that are really really good i think the contrast between off the wall and thriller are some of my favorite contrast between a back-to-back album release yeah because i mean with thriller you definitely had some carryover you had like some overlap mostly because mj worked with rod temperton too of heatwave so you had a lot of that kind of carryover because with off the wall So much of that was, you know, you talked about how the Chic records were Niall, Bernard, and Tony, right? Yeah, essentially. Well, with Off the Wall and Thriller, respectively, it was basically Quincy, Michael, and Rod doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And then, of course, Bruce Sweden was the sound engineer. On Thriller, you did have members of Toto playing in the background as well. Like, I think Jeff Pecoro played on there, I think. I'd be surprised if he didn't. But yeah, I mean, with Off the Wall, it was kind of a similar thing. Like, and I guess a lot of respects, there was kind of a couple of holy trinities of groove. And I think that with both of those sets of producing teams, it's very evident to see that. But I do get what you're saying, though, in terms of with Thriller, you really had the 80s sheen kind of in like full effect because digital recordings were really starting to come into the forefront. You had that sheen and that cleanliness of the 80s sound, like the crispness. It was so digital sounding. It was like, okay, forget that analog fatness, which it's still pretty analog in many ways. But when you compare it to 70s cuts, it's so pristine 80s, like check out the new era type sound. Right. But I mean, off the wall for it, you know, being 79 is still a really... No, no, it's still good, but it's a different character. Right. Than 80s records like Thriller and IG, uh, not IGY. Don't say it. Don't say it. Nightfly. So with, yeah, yeah, with Nightfly and um, Nightfly and Thriller are a couple of my favorite albums sonically, I'd say. Oh, yeah. That and uh, what's the album? Um, Unknown Pleasures by Joy Division, which even though it's technically 79, it's really got that 80s character. And before someone says, yeah, well, 79 and 80 is not much of a difference. Well, I disagree because some, you know, the latter number, the eight or nine albums. Yeah. 
will sound so much like the next decade over that I right. still kind of like, okay, it sounds like this time, but sometimes an eight or nine album will still sound like the decade it's in. So right. I'm saying Sheik's, uh, I think it's risque. It's from 1980. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah. So that one to me still feels like a seventies sounding album and I'm not hating on Sheik, but what I am going to throw over Michael Jackson's way is how he embraced new sounds and could just kind of morph into it kind of like david bowie so you know there's a lot to be said about people who do stuff like that yeah and i mean that's kind of the thing that i think of when talking about both nile rogers and quincy jones respectively as well but the producer really you're really only um if we're going to talk about sonics and fitting in the status quo or whatever the sound is you're really only as good as your producer and i don't want to throw that too much michael jackson's way but I still think it's relevant in Michael Jackson's respect or Michael Jackson's um, category, whatever you want to call it. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's the thing that can irritate me a little bit in regards to when people talk about MJ's career, especially his solo career. They put so much credit in regards to those three albums in MJ's favor, which don't get me wrong. MJ was a one of a kind generational talent, unlike anything that we had seen up until that point. And really, honestly, I don't really think there's been too much that's matched it since. I don't think so. I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, I would say in regards to profile, I mean, Beyonce and even in some respects, The Weeknd and in some respects, even Bruno Mars are kind of there. You wouldn't say Justin Bieber? Ugh. No, um, I mean, yes and no. Um, with Bieber and actually with Chris Brown too, in regards to MJ, because when Chris Brown initially came out, he got MJ comparisons. Like people thought that Chris Brown was going to be like the second coming of MJ, right? Because they both started young and they were both, you know, making successful, you know, records in their genre. They both can dance like nobody's business, both of them are excellent dancers unfortunately with chris brown and all the legal trouble and i think just like creatively i don't think chris brown is like anywhere near close. oh no 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 but i was talking about the beebs because of and it's crazy that i'm not even a fan really of beebs i'm just bringing them up because i'm thinking about comparisons to mj's career oh sure you know he's a, a crazy talent as a kid yeah and then he kind of had this moment where people were like, ah, we don't like this guy. But he kind of reinvented himself, you know, a little bit. And he sure he did pretty well. I won't lie. Like, he's pretty favorable. In fact, he has some of the most loyal fans I've come across. Uh, uh, Bieber, you mean? Oh, totally. Or MJ. Oh, well, because I think both of them have extremely loyal fan base. Well, I'm talking about Bieber. But yes, of course, MJ as well. But yes, per the Michael Jackson comparisons, I'm not talking about Bieber necessarily being as versatile as say david bowie but i'm talking about being able to kind of reinvent so to speak and to kind of you know people bullied bieber when he was younger right but i mean he was able to get a lot of respect as an adult you know as he got right. older i think he's gotten definitely more recently because of um well i mean with bieber it's so much of it is like he found god right you know so so to speak whatever that means yeah, well, that's 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 how he says it. I mean, right. he he's, he says that basically his his transformation came from either a rediscovery or finding God, 
And then also getting married too, you know, was a big thing as well. Right. Mellowed him out. But yeah, I can definitely see the point of comparison with Bieber and MJ being thrust into success at a really early age, both of them not really being able to like handle being thrust into a super early, you know, success. I feel like MJ kind of handled it better, but then of course I see kind of some of the allegations and kind of where those came from. And I was like, well, did MJ really handle it as well as I thought he did? Maybe not (laughs) because that was a big, you know, reason why he got in hot water was because of, you know, trying to relive the childhood that he didn't have. Right. So there are just some parallels that I see between both artists. Again, of course, I'm not saying I hate when people take not I'm not saying you do, but I hate when people take comparisons so literally, you know, Mm -hmm. but no, I mean, in a very loose way, but still, you know, a little firm kind of tightening that analogy like I see it so yeah no I definitely see where you're coming from too and that's kind of something that always bothers me as well in regards to when you're talking about in a lot of cases equally great music artists and you know there's so many people who are quick to say that a certain artist is the evolution of x artists or in a lot of cases even people saying that you know an artist or a producer is going to be, you know, the greatest of all time after only putting out like, you know, two albums or something. Yeah, it's like uh, getting into a stock too early. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I remember we talked about NFTs all those episodes ago, which boy, did if we if we knew how NFTs were going to go, how are we so enthused with it after seeing <laughs> after seeing basically that the NFTs were basically a huge sham like it was basically just they started off as kind of an interesting concept and then evolved into probably one of the biggest rug pulls that i have seen recently but it's interesting that you mentioned the whole idea of music stocks because i remember and this is kind of a full circle moment quincy jones i believe actually invested in a company that used nft blockchain technology to essentially do that I forgot what the name of the company was. I don't know if they're still around, but I remember reading something about him being an early investor in a company that would allow kind of the average person to buy into essentially shares of like a master recording, like a stock and actually be able to like profit off of it, depending on the song that you bought into. So for example, if you wanted to buy into shares of, I don't know, MJ's catalog or something like you know what I mean like it was I think that's what I remember reading about so it's just an interesting kind of full circle moment to think that Quincy had a a play in that too and um, you know that brings a really interesting segue into the next producer that we're going to cover in the next episode obviously Quincy Jones someone who is incredibly prolific just like Nile Rodgers had a career that has lasted half a century plus and uh, looking forward to talking more about his prevalence and influence on the industry as well in the next episode so once again this has been an edition of the work tape podcast it's money mitchell isaac rubin grover stay hydrated and uh stay tuned for the next one peace drink your water peace <laughs>